Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Ahoy hoy, history buffs! It is another episode of Whining About History with your favorite history heroines. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And are you ready to whine about some badass babes with us today? I know I am. You fucking better be, because that's what's happening. Because I have to. This is my job. The train has left the station, and we are doing this. Can I do a sub-history fact? Yes. For anyone that knows, uh, the greeting Emily used, ahoy hoy, is actually what the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, wanted to use instead of hello. Because he was extra. Yes. And he didn't know better. Can you just imagine that? Like calling someone and being like, ahoy hoy. I have to say, I love the idea that the phone was so new and inventive. It's like, no. We, we need, need a, a new yeah. way to say hello, specifically for the phone. Like, because otherwise... Obviously, it didn't win. Well, otherwise, how will people know you're calling them on the phone? Right. It'll just be like normal talking. Yeah. It just... But yeah, so that, that's your sub-history fact, in case you didn't know that. I love that you knew that, because I was going to say it, okay, so I'm very good. proud of you. Thank you. So, before we get started, I do have a say their name. Yay! So, this kind of popped up on my Facebook feed, and I thought it was super cool. So, the headline for this article is, Broadcast Journalist Makes History with Face Tattoos. And instantly, I'm just like, face tattoos. Yeah, because you can be inked and still be a professional badass. Right. But this takes another step. So, Orini Kaipara is a broadcast journalist of Maori descent belonging to the Tuho Ngati Awa Tweheratoa and Te Arawa people. I am so sorry. That was beautiful, though. There that was, has to be that has to be close. That was fucking it just kept going. I didn't realize the name was so long. So she in 2017 she learned that she was 100% Maori ancestry and she really wanted to get back in touch with that culture and so she got traditional Maori tattoos on her face and I'm going to show you the picture right now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it's just it's not like, you know, she's yeah, it's, got... it's from her, like, lower lip down her chin. And I think her lips are tattooed, too. It looked like the bottom one was. I couldn't tell if the top one was. I think her top lip is, too. Oh, yeah. Because it goes Okay, so yeah, it's the, the, top, the top lip's down. It's very pretty. Yeah, and so it's just one of those things, one, it's honoring her culture, but also you can be a badass broadcast journalist and have face tattoos. It doesn't detract from your credibility right. or professionalism. And the article even opens up. So this is from inkedmag.com. If you were to close your eyes and imagine the appearance of a television journalist, you'd likely conjure up a clean-cut individual without a shred of visible ink on their bodies. By and large, news journalists appeal to older audiences, and networks prefer to be represented by people with conservative appearances. However, a 35-year-old woman from Auckland, New Zealand, recently broke down major barriers by appearing on TVNZ1 with her face tattoo. That's awesome. And it's cultural. And what I like about it, too, is that tribal tattoos have gotten a really bad name because... Because white people do them, and and they're terrible. And it's like, you're doing this only to, like beyond trend it's all a bunch of bros with the bicep tattoo right, and it's like, terrible so to see someone 
paying homage to their culture and embracing it, but then also being like, I can still be a professional and this representation's important made me smile. Right. Yeah. No, that was a great say their name. Yeah. It Good made job, me smile. Emily. I told you I'd have one. Right. I fucking told you. Yeah, because you forgot last time. No, I'm I forgot all the time. So while I'm introducing our wine, Emily bought it. I still haven't bought any wine because I'm a terrible human being. Um, I'm also still not drinking wine. So when you see our Wine Wednesday photos, that's why like the one didn't have my glass. And then the other one was like my chocolate protein shake. And then this one is I'm drinking Crystal Light today. So we're getting that fancy wine where like you pour one glass and then you pour another. And, and they like, look completely different. different. That, that's different that's actually what's happening. I'm not drinking Crystal Light. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're drinking magic wine. Yeah. So today we got Stella Rosa Tropical Mango. Sail away to an isolated paradise by enjoying a glass or three of Stella Rosa Tropical Mango. Let this fruity, refreshing wine take you on a relaxing vacation, even when you can't get out of the house. I love they say a glass or three, and I'm like, oh, they wrote this about me. Right. So it said that that's what their website says. The back of the bottle says grapes for for our delicious Stella Rosa tropical mango are harvested from beautiful vineyards. This refreshing wine is combined with natural flavors of ripe mango and exotic passion fruit. Stella Rosa tropical mango is seductive, rich and full bodied with a hint of sweetness served chilled with fresh fruit, cheese, spicy cuisine and desserts. Stellabrate life with friends and a bottle of Stella Rosa tropical mango. God damn them. I love it. Yeah, it's even like TN, like copyrighted after Stellabrate. It's cute though. I appreciate a good pun for sure. Right. I'm like, yeah, if you can do stuff like that with your name, why not? I love Stella Rosa too. Like my friend and I used to buy it all the time, and we they're have a movie really nights. great wine company. But they've got a ton of different flavors yep. too. Like I've had a lot of the berries, and so I was like, you know, tropical mango. That'll be a little right. different. And well, and apparently they have, like, different sub-brands. So, like, this one is La Originale, and then they have their luxury wines, Ooh. and then they have their sparkling wines, and then they have their mini bottle, mini and aluminum bottles. Ooh. So, they have, like, three subsets of wine within Stella Rosa. Gotta drink them all, Stella Rosa. <clears throat> nice. It's really good, though. Like, it, it's weird, though, because it kind of has this... um almost blue cheese aftertaste but it's good I and i don't like the blue passion cheese. fruit maybe? it might be like i don't eat a lot of fruit i don't know what's supposed to taste yeah, like. i've never had i don't think i've ever had passion fruit um but yeah like the the, the alum, aluminum ones that i've mentioned are basically they look like a little beer bottle and i almost bought those the last time there i was there but i was like I can't decide if drinking wine from a can is classier or trashier than beer classier because okay. it's still wine okay cans is it are... is it like on the same equivalent as like boxed wine or how people perceive boxed wine here's the thing we need trendsetters like us to save the perceptions of boxed wine and canned wine right. because i was like anything... man if they sell the, these fruity flavors in the little aluminum cans we can take them tubing right <laughs> exactly but here's the thing like boxed wine it's not it's, bad. It's good, but also it's a little more efficient than a bottle. Like the bottle's pretty. Especially if you're going to a big like thing. Right. But 
you know, the this bottle has like a giant divot in the bottom, and yeah, all I and I'm sure snow. <laughs> I'm sure there's a purpose for that. But all I can see is less wine, right? <laughs> and there's actually, if you want to like learn some other facts, listen to uh, there's an Adam ruins everything. If you don't know what that is, it's it's great. It's about it's a guy that like talks about like actual like these are the actual facts this is what you hear but these are the actual facts behind this stuff you think you know the truth about driving but you don't right like he has it about wedding rings he has a whole bunch of but he has one about like the wine industry and how like even like wine experts you can you can give them if if they're doing a blind taste test like they They can't can't tell tell the difference yeah and that's what I love about wine. It's supposed to be this kind of pretentious thing, but it's like if you enjoy it, drink it. It doesn't right. have to be And that's, to that's be how good like that everyone. episode ends that he that like people are like, "Oh, but but like how do we know what wine to drink then if like there's not people to tell us?" And he's like, "Just drink whatever you like." Yeah. Like if you like boxed wine, drink boxed wine. If you like fancy wine, drink fancy wine. We are going to get a boxed wine on this podcast though. Eventually. We're going to slap that bag. Right. Slap it good. We'll do it right in the mic for, you know, ASMR purposes. Instead of our clink cheers, we're just going to slap the bag. Speaking, Speaking of. Which, <laughs> what are we cheersing to today? I'm cheersing to something stressful in my life that's been going on for a while is is finally wrapping up. I think that's a good thing. To and the last to. of my stitches pulled out of my scars. Yay! So that was exciting. Good for you. Like, they were intern, like, just for people that are like, you're not supposed to pull your own stitches out. They were internal stitches that had poked through, like, the end. And they say, as long as it's not like re- you don't feel resistance when you pull, it's fine. Yeah. Because it wasn't attached. Like, they were super short. So they were, it wasn't attached to anything anymore. But it was really exciting. So, like, now my incisions are nice and smooth. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, good clink. These bottles usually do a good one. Mine's really full and yours is really empty. So it was good resounding. I've been, uh, I've been sipping. Yeah. There's like a blue cheese aftertaste, but I like I it. I like want to try it, but yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not no. ready yet. I'm not ready for that. That's fine because we can always buy this again. There you go. I would drink it Might again. Like just sit upstairs. And- <laughs> Sorry. I got so- sometimes we don't finish our wines and then they just sit up up in my wine area, which is like, a- I just have a four bottle rack. Um but they just sit up there for a while until my friend Drew comes over and drinks them. One of the times I got the most drunk on this podcast was, I think we recorded two episodes in a row. And then we finished the first bottle. We finished the first bottle. And then afterwards we were like, Oh, we need to finish off some of these old bottles, and so we're right. just passing it around. Yeah, we, we were it off. drinking, watching Veronica Mars, and just like yep. finishing bottle. That was yeah, I was pretty drunk. That and then too. you had to like, we had to run an errand or something, and I went with you. And I remember just sitting down, and it hit me, and I was like, I am so yeah. fucking drunk right now. I hate this. And I went home. Yeah, and I like laid across the foot That's of my funny. bed and fell asleep. This is probably why your boyfriend's like, yeah, I drive you and <laughs> yeah. when, when you do multiple episodes. Oh, yeah. That's funny. All right. So wonderful me gets to go first today. Yay. Um, I am covering Mary Ann Shad. I've never heard the, of her. The first time I like read the name, I had to like go back and forth in our notes. I'm like, crap, have we covered this woman before? Because I don't, I think we've covered a, diff- a different Mary Ann and... It was messing with my hand. Okay. So, Marianne was born in Wilmington, Delaware. I don't think we've had anyone from Delaware yet. No. On October 9th, 1823. All right. We're going so back set, a ways. Setting the, setting the tone. She was the eldest of 13 children to Abraham and Harriet, who were free African-Americans. 
Growing up, her family's home frequently served as a refugee for fugitive slaves, including part of the, like, they kind of worked with the Underground Railroad. Good. That's Um, awesome. However, when it became illegal to educate African-American children in the state of Delaware, uh, the parents up and moved their family to Pennsylvania so that Mary could attend a a Quaker boarding school. Damn, Delaware. I I expected better of you. In 1840, after being away from school, uh, Mary Ann returned to East Chester, um, Pennsylvania, and established a school for black children. She also later taught in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and New York City. In 1848, uh, Mary Ann, who was 25 at the time, there's not a lot about her childhood, so it kind of just skips to her being a little yeah, older. Yeah, it was, okay, her parents were abolitionists, and then Delaware decided to be a dick. Right, and then the she got to go to school because they like moved states. Right, exactly. That very phallic state. It is. Like, the majority of the state is, like, the balls, and then it's just, like, straight up. Yeah. It's the skinniest dick. Yeah. We're not insulting you, Delaware. That's not a bad thing. We're Delaware, just you know what it. your state looks like. Right. <laughs> just like um, Florida knows that they are the dick of America. Delaware, <laughs> you know you've got a phallic fucking state. Right. Um, so in 1848, Marianne, who was 25 at the time, wrote a long letter to the abolitionist and, and African-American statesman Frederick Douglass, which I was gonna guess I'm sure people know. <laughs> yeah, because um, he had because he had a newspaper, the North Star newspaper, and he had asked the, his readers for suggestions on improving life of, for black people in America. So her letter, I don't know if it started this way, but like the famous quote from her letter is, we should do more and talk less. I like that. Um, She also went on to say in her letter, we have been holding conventions for years. We have been assembling together and whining over our difficulties and afflictions, passing resolutions on resolutions to any extent. But it does really seem that we have made but little progress considering our resolves. I'm feeling a little attacked right now because she's saying, do more, talk less. Well, we have a podcast. That's literally all we do. And <laughs> all we like, do is talk. All we're doing is whining. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Does she know us? So so from a young age, obviously, I mean, 25, that's that's fairly young. Yeah. You know, she. Her brain has just finished developing. Right. So she was very active already and passionate. Um, two years later, unfortunately, uh, America decided to be a dick's. Not America. The United States decided to be dicks and passed the Fugitive Slave Law. Yay! Um, which, for those of you that don't know, was basically um, a law that like threatened to return free northern blacks and escape slaves back into slavery. Because it used to be that once you crossed the line into the north, yeah, you, were, you were home free and the south couldn't like come into the north and take you back. But with and, the Fugitive Slave yep. Law. And here's the thing. It didn't even threaten just slaves. It threatened the free African-Americans, too. And isn't that what 12 Years a Slave was about? Because Solomon was a free black man. But, well, you're black. We're just going to kidnap you and make money off of selling you to someone who needs some slaves. It was absolutely terrible. So if you're black, you're in danger. It does not matter. Oh, you have freedom papers whatever the hell those might look like don't care you're black you have no rights yeah, or agency it was it was a big thing and it was terrible Fucked so up. marianne and her brother isaac um moved to canada smart um it did say that her parents along with like her other siblings also moved to canada but they like went to a slightly different part of canada but um marianne and isaac settled in windsor canada which is just across the border from detroit okay so for reference 
even though like in my mind i'm like i don't know exactly where detroit is but it's i would just yeah it's michigan so i'm like okay so this is north of michigan it's in some chunk of canada right above michigan that's exactly where i was thinking too which is just to the right of us of the chunk of canada above us yeah exactly um so this is where mary ann's um effort to create free black settlements in canada really began like this was a big thing for her um while while there she founded a racially integrated school racially integrated people in 1850 1851 let's remember it took i mean this is in canada but still like that's huge it took the united states as a country until the late 1960s to figure that shit out right i know i have to stop saying america because i'm like no because canada's technically part of North, North America. America is a continent, but I feel like America is still used yeah. to describe our country. Um, so she made an integrated school with the support of the American Missionary Association. Um, she also went on to publish a pamphlet called, quote, Notes on the Canada West. Mm. Or on Canada West, not on the Canada West. Um, which was a plea for emigration and discussed the benefits as well as opportunities for black uh, for black people in that area that she lived in. She was like, come on, like, let's make this big community, like, come to Canada. It was great. As if people need any more reason other than, point one, you won't be, like, kidnapped into slavery. I'm there. Right. Exactly. Like, it was it was a big thing. Point so, two, refer to point one. <laughs> continue. Um, so in 1853, so a few years after she moved to Canada, she founded um, the Provincial Freeman which was a paper um, published weekly, I believe, um, which was just initially for the Windsor area in Canada and then moved to Toronto and Chatham and eventually actually like made it back into the like circulated in the United States. Um, So the slogan for her newspaper was devoted to anti-slavery, temperance and general literature. So that's nice. What was temperance again? So temperance is... um, abstinence from alcoholic drink so she wouldn't like us very much but this is in the 1850s fucking hates us from from the from the past she's like guys i'm not okay with you talk less do more stop whining don't drink she is against everything that we do (laughs) um but her approach was very progressive and unorthodox and she sometimes alienated a lot of people with her paper because she often criticized abolitionists who did not fight for full equality and instead like still supported segregated schools and neighborhoods she also denounced refugee associations that gathered funds to support fugitive slaves but turned a blind eye blind eye to free blacks who were forced to live in poverty you know so he kind of she kind of called people out on their two-faced bullshit basically We've talked about this in the past too. I think with uh was it Mary Edwards Walker? Who you covered last time? I'm not last time, but I have covered her. No, last time. Was it last time? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I covered uh Mabel. Things just go so like quickly. I yeah. Know. <laughs> but she was she was too woke because basically all oh, of yeah. her sentiments yep. would be right at home yep. in today's yep. culture. Well, and it was how like she she even called out people at like remember at the very end of my story, I was like, she called out, you know, bloomers and all this stuff and she's like, I've been doing this for years. Right. And now all of these other like I paved the way for these people to be able to do what they do. Quick tangent. Do you remember that dude on Twitter? What dude on Twitter? He was like, 
I don't know if he had a podcast or he was doing like a journalism thing, but he was like, I'm telling women's stories from history. Oh, that guy that I was like, excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, no one else is doing this. I'm talking about women from history and this is revolutionary. And like a trillion women's history podcast. We're all like, excuse me. (laughs) And here's the thing. It's like, hey, dude. Please tell women's stories from history. That's great. Don't pretend you're the only right. fucking and one. And that, that, I think that's what all, like all of us said. Like that we're like, you know, great for you, but you're not the first person to do this. Yeah. You're not even like the 30th person to do this. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whoa, wait, wait. I have this revolutionary, revolutionary idea. There were women in the past, right? Stay with me. Stay with me. And they did stuff. That was pretty cool. What if we talk about them? Like, no one else is doing that, right? Right. Not enough people are doing it, but plen- uh, plenty of people are doing it. Well, and we what it is is we need the people that are doing it and the people that are doing it well need to be, you know. Promoted. Promoted. So, you know. Review us. Please. <laughs> okay. Moving but on. I, oh. I just want to make one more point. One more point. We see people today who have these quote unquote outrageous ideas and it's like, no, no, that's too much. We need to dial right, it like, back. Tone it down. Let's remember no. how that's going to look 50, 100 years from now. There's no halfway to equality or like half rights. We need to fucking commit. Right. And that's what she's saying. Yeah, exactly. She's like, let's, if we're going to do this, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's not stay segregated. And she's not you know. sacrificing her people to gain an inch. Right. Like I love that. We've done in the past. Right. Yeah. And I like that she's even like, you know, yes, I'm, I'm glad that you're gathering funds, but it's like we need to support the people that are already free as well as the slaves that are working to be free. Yeah. You can't be like, yeah, black people. People shouldn't be enslaved, but I don't really care about them. I don't really care if they're poor. Yeah, I don't really care if they're living in yeah, poverty. So that's terrible. And she called free. people out, and people weren't always happy with that. Like, well, because they suck. Exactly. A, cri- a critic from a rival paper, unhappy with her views, wrote, "Quote: Miss Shad has said and written many things which we think will add nothing to her credit as a lady." End quote. Oh. Oh, so it's not ladylike to yeah. fight for equal rights. Well, excuse me, you right. douchebag. Um, so uh, Marianne wrote many of the articles for this paper herself and often returned to the United States to gather information for the paper, which is pretty impressive. Well, and it was dangerous, too, because she could have been just like oh, yeah. captured at any time. Yeah, I get oh. into that a little later, too. Like, yeah, that's if she had gotten picked up by someone like that's it. Yeah, you just have to run into the she wrong person. She just wouldn't show up in Canada and her brother would be like, okay, where the fuck did she go? Right. So in Jane Rhodes' biography of Marianne, um, which is called Marianne Shad Carey, I call her Marianne Shad because she was actually only married for like four years, but I'll get into that later. Only four years. Um, the Black Press, so the book is called Marianne Shad Carey, The Black Press and Protest in the 19th Century. Which is a nice name. Um, mm-hmm. So Rhodes, the author of the biography, noted that Kerry was one of the first to advocate that African-Americans leave the United States and emigrate to Canada. Her newspaper operated from 1953 until about 18 or 1853 until like, 18 whoa. until 1860, providing strong editorial commentary, culture and information about things going on in other places. Just a general note on newspapers of this time. These newspapers in general provided african-americans with the means to take on their own political destinies marianne was the first african-american woman to publish her own newspaper that distributed in north america damn 
Yep. She published her, her final edition in 1861, right before the war. And although white abolitionist newspapers featured articles against slavery, primarily based on religious reasons, they did not offer African-Americans the opportunity to express themselves on their pages. Um, historians have pointed out that the, the newspaper's archives are not complete, like from African-American newspapers, but still offer the best insight into the minds of African-Americans during this time. The, the newspapers included poetry, letters, travelogues, and more. So that was just like in general about yeah. newspapers. Well, just think about it, too. She wouldn't have been able to write and publish her own newspaper had her family not been able to move to Pennsylvania because Delaware was like, you don't get get to learn to read and write. Right, exactly. Um, and that's how they get you. They strip your education. They strip your power. Right. And there, so there were a lot of African-American newspapers that worked to uplift the race and to change the perception that white Americans held about the former slaves. There was a quote that said, Black community leaders stressed that education, strong moral values, honest labor, thrift, and so forth would change the myths that white had about blacks' inferiority. Essentially, this means the ascent from ignorance to literacy, end quote. And they didn't say where they pulled that quote from, but apparently that was a philosophy both uh, Mary Ann and Frederick Douglass used in their papers. To pr- like, they promoted that line of thinking pretty heavily. So it's like, we need to we need to sh- we No, it's like, we need to show them that we're okay. not this inferior species that, we, that they think we are. Right. Yeah. So as I said, she, she would travel around advocating, well, her newspaper and advocating full racial integration through education and self-reliance. So she was like, you know, do things for yourself, which I think is great. Yeah. Especially like when you're down, like downtrodden. Like I feel like as a woman, we kind of live on that same thing. Like do things for yourself. Don't rely on a man or, you know, like, yes, empowered women empower women, but it's still like, you know. We all need each other to lift ourselves up. But you need to be able to lift yourself up, you too. Need, you can't be waiting around for someone to save you. You have to empower yourself to do what you need or want to do. Right. Be your own white knight. Yeah. So in 1855, she attempted to participate in the Philadelphia Colored Convention. But the assembly debated whether to even let her sit as a delegate. Partially be... Sorry, that was my stomach. Partially because of, like, how controversial her and her newspaper were. I'm... She was too controversial. Apparently. For and, black people? Well, yeah. Well, because remember, like, she would, like, kind of talk down about abolitionists that didn't like segregation. So it was just controversial in every community. Okay. Um, her advocacy on emigration also kind of made her kind of controversial. Because this was in Philadelphia. So this was in the United States. And so yeah. they're kind of like, eh, do we really want someone that's, you know, like, move to Canada on our, you know, delegation? She, But she was finally admitted good um by a slim margin of only 15 votes it doesn't say how many votes there were total but she was she got enough by 15 let's remember she was telling people to move to canada because the alternative was was potential capture and you know being a slave slavery even whether you were free escaped or whatever yeah so according to frederick Douglass's paper who they covered this convention um although she gave a speech at the convention on immigration and she was really well deceived that the delegates voted to actually give her 10 more minutes to speak oh i love right. it however they didn't even want her and then they're like right they're yeah, like yeah girl. keep talking yeah however her presence at the convention was largely elided which i i think means like they kind of just skimmed over the fact that she was there from the minutes like they just kind of you know, we're like they were mm. erasing her from her history. Yeah, and they they think it was because she was a woman. 
God damn it. So, yeah, Stop. elided means emitted when speaking. So she was, it was largely emitted. She was largely emitted from the minutes because, likely because she was a woman. It'd be like if this podcast was just me going, Jesus, right. oh man, that's awful. And you have no idea why I'm talking about right. I'm omitting you from the podcast. That would be kind of funny no and sense. like terrible at the same time. That should be our Patreon content. Just me doing a bunch of like reactions. What? And, but they don't get my side of it. Yeah. No. Slavery uh, sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. In 1856, so a year after the convention, she married Thomas F. Carey, a Toronto barber who was also involved in, in the Provincial Freeman, which was her paper. Uh, little is known of her married years, like what she did during that time. Um, she did continue to befriend fugitive slaves and edit at the paper. But beyond that, um, and having two children. She had a daughter named Sarah and a son named Linton. Um, Aww, yeah, that's adorable. I would name a cat Linton. I know that's it's cute. Um, other th- other than that, there's not like a lot about like how her relationship was or anything like that. Um, sh- sadly, her husband died only four years after they were married in oh. 18, 1860. It wasn't even like maybe they didn't have a good relationship right and they yeah there's just divorced. like nothing and then he dies oh bummer um after he died mary ann and her children moved back to the united states um and then as we know of course civil war yay, <laughs> yay! Um, it was a grand old time in the good old u.s of a right um so they moved back and then obviously they were back in the united states for the civil war um during the civil war at the behest of abolitionist martin delaney Mary Ann served as a recruiting officer to enlist black volunteers for the Union Army in the state of Indiana. Yes. So that's pretty neat. And then after the Civil War, she went back to teaching in black schools and then moved to Washington, D.C., where she enrolled in Howard University Law School. Oh, my God. And continued teaching. So she would attend her law school classes at night and teach local children during the day. That's a fucking hero. And then obviously she still had her own children. Children are exhausting. Right. I know. It's crazy. When I worked at the daycare, I always felt bad for the teachers who had their own kids. Not because having kids is, you know, a bad thing, but they spend eight plus hours dealing with 20 Other people's children. children. And then you have to go home and deal with your own children. Yeah. You know, and it's just, you got to be just so burnt out. And then by the time you get to your own kids. Right. You you're like, I don't want to do this. Everything you have. And you're just like, who are you? What are you doing? Uh, let's use our inside voices. Mommy has a headache. Right. Mommy still smells shit from the eight blowout she had to deal with. <laughs> get stuck in your nose. Oh, that's funny. It's awful. So while doing that, she also wrote for a local African-American newspaper called The The New National Era and gave public speeches to encourage African-Americans to work together to recover from the slavery era. Mary Ann was also the founder of the Color Women's Progressive Franchise Association, which I couldn't find a lot of. I didn't look super hard, but like. It sounds cool, but I have no idea what it is. Yeah, exactly. It sounds just like empowered black women empower black women yeah and it was probably awesome it was a podcast yeah it was a podcast that's what i'm that's about first three headcanon yes <laughs> um marianne also became involved with the women's suffrage movement yes this is all tying in now no i'm kidding she was a member of the national women's suffrage association so the nwsa and spoke at the nwsa's 1878 convention quote 
I am not vain enough to suppose for a moment that words of mine could add one iota of weight to the arguments from those learned and earnest women, end quote. That's how she began her speech. She then detailed how, as a colored woman, that's a direct quote, and yet as, quote, a resident of this district, a taxpayer, end quote, she was allotted only a portion of rights of her male counterparts. So she's pointing out the horrible, horrible truth and reality. Yep. I like it. She also advocated for the 14th and 15th Amendments at a House Judiciary Committee hearing. The 14th Amendment defined citizenship, and the 15th Amendment granted African-American men the right to vote. Ugh. I mean, I'm glad black men have the right to vote, but can we just give it to everyone? Yep. And it says, while Mary Mary Ann spoke in support of the, the 15th Amendment, she was also critical of it as it did not give the women the right to vote. Right, because you can't So she was sacrifice. like, I'm glad you're like seeing that we're equal people, but you have to realize both genders are equal. Right. You know. it's And, and we talk about that with intersectionality. Oh, you yeah. Know? It's you're insane. black and you're a woman. It's it, it Society almost views it as like two strikes against you. Right, yeah. They, uh, like I read... In, during this time period where she lived, black females were like the most marginalized group in the country. Yeah. So. Because they're black. And that would be hard. And they're and female. They're women. Yeah, exactly. And this is at a time where in the beginning of the story, neither one of those had rights. Oh, And absolutely. then at the end, it was still women don't have rights. But also, it's like we can't sacrifice the rights of half of our community no. to gain an inch. And like, give us rights. Right, na- exactly. All of us and she now. was 100% like that. She's like, hey, I'm glad black men are getting the right to vote, but we should also be given the right to vote right fucking exactly. now. Exactly. So, toward the end of her life, Carrie lived in uh, Brick Row House in Northwest DC. That house today is listed as a national historic landmark. And, um, as it helps understand her life and work as an advocate for equality for all people. Because as an educator, an abolitionist, an editor, an attorney, and a feminist, she dedicated her life to improving the quality of life for everyone. Black, white, male, female, didn't matter. Which is the best. We need that. You can't just... It's like uh, in feminism... Right. Well, I mean, if you're a trans woman, like, you yeah, don't we, get it. We've gone no. over this so many times in so many different iterations. And we that's do. the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your orientation. Nothing matters. We should all have the same rights. Right. And it's so frustrating because it seems like we have to learn the same lesson right. over and over. And it just comes in a different packaging. It's right. like, no. Like, I love learning about these women, but like, God damn it. We like... already figured this out. We had multiple wars about right. this. Just get on board. <laughs> um, she died in Washington, D.C. on June 5th, 8- 1893 from stomach cancer. Oh. Yeah. She, and awful. she was interred at the Columbian Harmony Cemetery. How old was she? Um, let's see. 1893. I'm sorry. I should no, have. 70. That's not bad. 69, 70. That's not bad. No, not at all. Like for the 1800s, that's not, that's not bad at all. So it would be many, obviously many years after she died until women got the right to vote. Um, and, and despite her barrier breaking life, uh, her legacy kind of largely faded from view in the decades after she died. 
Well, because people didn't want to listen to her even when she was alive. And now that she's dead, they super don't have to listen to her. Right, exactly. It says, even in the sphere she helped shape through tenacity and sheer force of will, the abolitionist movement in her youth, where her progressive ideas drew ire, and later the suffrage movement, where black women were often marginalized, she was once a powerful force and a woman on the fringe. And that's the thing. She was, no matter what group she was in, she was kind of on the fringe, unfortunately. Rhodes, the woman that wrote her biography, quoted, the seeming contradiction that Shad Carey would be viewed simultaneously as an object of respect respect and leadership and as an object of derision is central to the the story of the African-American woman. Well said. Um, Depressing, but well said. Right, I know. So legacy, like I said, her old house is a National Historic Landmark. In 1987, she was designated a Women's History Month honoree by the (gasps) National Women's History Project. In 1998, she was in inducted into the national women's hall of fame yay um she was also honored by canada being oh, designated canada. a person of national higno- historical significance and then in 2018 she got a belated obit- obituary from the new york times and actually oh. some of my information came from that obituary I love but that I, I love that they're doing that if Me you too. haven't like if you want to read some interesting obituaries the new york times um now i can't remember what they called it But they're doing this project where they're writing obituaries for people who have largely been left out of obituaries through time. Yeah, like they actually even they even acknowledge that. So it's called Overlooked. Since 1851, obituaries in the New York Times have been dominated by white men. Now we're adding the stories of other remarkable people. So like that's actually what they say. They're like, no, we know what happened. We're working on fixing it. Yeah. And. We've mentioned them before because they've covered a few of the people like we've talked about over, you know, the the ones. But yeah, like you can go in there and like they've covered Ida B. Wells and uh, Mary Ewing, which I know the name. Um, Marsha P. Johnson was on there. Sylvia Plath. Like they've and they don't just cover women. They do cover a lot of women, though. Because a lot of women were left Um, out. But you'll see like, you know, black men or Asian men or, you know, other minorities that wouldn't have been covered. But it's 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 let's be honest. It's largely women. (laughs) (laughs) It's really cool. Like you can go deep down the rabbit hole on it. It's fascinating. I think they're still doing it. I think they started in 2018. I think it's still going on, but I better be. I'm not 100 percent sure. Write so. to the New York Times and tell them to keep going. Right. Because there's no way they come. Yeah. And, and what's really nice about it is it's not just like an obituary where like it's like a pair, you know, a lot of obituaries are like a paragraph where they're like, oh, this is who they left behind. And, you know, no, like they actually like these ones actually like tell you about their life like it's not like our four pages of research that we normally have but it's it's probably like a page page it, and a half it's like a little biography yeah on it's really nice it's and they awesome. always have like a nice picture so you know if you're ever bored go check out overlooked on new york times but yeah that was um marianne shad and while like nothing she didn't do anything spectacular i thought i, I just thought it was did. really interesting and because you know, she she just she wanted it for everyone. Like she was like, I just and she just wanted to help people from being an abolitionist to a suffragist, you know, to an educator, to a lawyer. Like she's like, I just want to help people get what they deserve. See, and I think that is incredible. 
because, you know, we, we've covered women who invented something or they founded the first thing or were the first graduate of whatever. Right. And she was, they do consider her one of the first African-American female lawyers. Oh, yeah. But she wasn't like the first and she, but she was the first to open like a newspaper in Canada and stuff. So that was cool. But yeah, like I just thought her drive and like her tenacity and her zeal for like life of all people was just something that needed to be like brought to life. She fought her entire life to make things better for everyone. Exactly. And, and it was, that is incredible. Right. Like, I barely have the energy to get out of bed in the morning, let alone right, to like, confront the deep-seated racism of the world. I'm not able to fight for, like, what I want. Like, if someone takes Taco a bottle Bell, of wine McDonald's, out of my hand... I don't know. <laughs> if someone takes a bottle of wine out of my hand, I might scratch him a little, but I'm not going to put up much of a fight. Right. I might only grab if they're, another bottle. Only if they're within, them. like, scratching distance. <laughs> Uh, yes exactly give me back my wine but hey that wasn't like super depressing it wasn't it was it was really cool all right i am covering sutemasu oyama yep nope never yep. heard of her that is- <laughs> i think you saw that coming though and i love that because we try to cover women that you probably haven't heard of you know yeah, so it's nice when the our other co-host also hasn't heard of them yeah so before i begin this woman's name changes several times throughout her life or she goes by like different names. Okay. But each name is really important to her story. So I've labeled the different sections I mean, I've got, like, by two the name she's under. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to refer to her. Um, I think I tried to refer to her by the name that was relevant to that section. Okay. But overall, Tsutemasu is the name. Okay, so the first section, I know I just said what her name is. Forget that. The first section is titled Sakiko Yamakawa. Uh, so Sutemasu was born Yamakawa Sakiko on March 16th, 1860, 331 years and one day apart from Kelly's birthday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't forget you. Nice. And she was born in Aizu, Japan to a samurai family who served the Lord of Aizu. Her name meant Little Blossom. Aww. Hold on to that feeling. Okay, I will. It gets sad. Now, if you listen to episode seven, where I cover the Onibugeisha and Nakano uh, Takeko, Aizu should sound familiar. At the time... I was going to say the name, like... And this was not on purpose. Or the city does. Yeah, that's funny. This was not on purpose. But I was like, oh, I already did, like, some of the research. And I had to go back and re-research it because I... Still trying to wrap my head around the complexities of, like, foreign politics from the 1800s. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> so much fun. Why do we have this podcast? Anyway, uh, at the time, Aizu was a militant region of Japan known for their great military warriors and security operations. However, when the Boshin War broke out, which was like Japan's civil war, Aizu found itself on the losing side. In very simplified terms, to the point where it might be offensive, the Boshin War was a civil war between the traditional Tokugawa shogunate, who were Japan's feudal military government, and those wanting to give uh, political power to the imperial court, a.k.a. the emperor. Some of the tensions that led to the Boshin War included how to deal with increasing foreign interference, a.k.a. foreigners wanting to open up Japan, and Japan being like, nah, bro. (laughs) Nah. Aizu, along with their allies, resisted the imperial court's forces as long as they could, because they were on, like, the feudal yep. shogunate side. 
So they resisted the forces as long as they could, but they were ultimately backed into a corner and defeated in the Battle of Aizu, a month-long siege of Aizu Castle. Yeah, it was a bummer. Again, those of you loyal listeners who listen to Episode 7 know that this is where Onobu Geisha Nakano Takeko led a ragtag group of female warriors in the battle. In fact... Sakiko's sister cut her hair and joined the female fighting forces. However, Nakano and her warriors were not the only women participating in the month-long siege. The rest of Aizu's women were helping behind the scenes, including Sakiko. Though she was only eight years old, Sakiko was positioned behind the walls of Aizu Castle, running ammunition to gunners, tending to wounds, and when artillery fire landed nearby, she would run to the shells with a wet blanket to smother them and prevent them from exploding. So imagine like this hot cannonball hitting the ground, and if it doesn't get cooled down, it's going to blow up and just rip everyone to shreds. That's terrifying. And, and this, this eight-year-old is running child. toward it with a blanket. It's like, I got this. Ugh. This is horrifying. This was extremely dangerous. As yeah. if she was unsuccessful, she would be blown away. There was no if, ands, or buts. You were dead. Yeah. Anyway, this is how Sakiko's sister-in-law died. When the shell exploded, it pierced Sakiko's sister-in-law in the chest, and an errant piece of shrapnel sliced the side of Sakiko's neck. Unfortunately, the explosion didn't kill her sister-in-law immediately. Oh, that's terrible. As she lay dying, the sister-in-law begged her mother-in-law, Sakiko's mother, to kill her and give her oh, yeah. an honorable death. Because it's not just the suffering, it's like, you need to kill me so, like, it's the enemy doesn't get to say they did it. Like, yep. give me that honor. However, the mother could not bear to do it, and Sakiko watched her sister-in-law die slowly in agony. She would carry the scar on her neck to remember it always. Yeah. Sad. That's when- how I would be, though. Like, if I was in, like, pain and I knew I was going to die eventually, too, I would be like, Emily. Emily, you better motherfucking kill me. And I would hate it, but I would really try to do that right? for you. Well, and you see it in, like, I just recently rewatched, like, The Hunger Games. This is uh, episode three, book three, spoiler. Episode, actually, movie four, book three, spoiler. If you haven't already seen Skip it. Skip forward, like, 30 seconds. Yeah. But um, when Finnick is, like, being torn apart and he's, like, screaming, he she- dies? Yes. No! apparently spoilers for emily i never saw the fourth movie damn it um but she drops something that like kills him like so it's not just him being like i know i cried so hard um but she does it like in the hung in the original movie too when they defeat kato and he's being torn apart by the hounds she shoots him in the head yeah you know it's it, hunters do it with like you know obviously they're gonna kill the animal anyways but a lot of times like they'll you want to suffer yeah they if they're wounded a lot of hunters will they're supposed to not all hunters do but they'll like purposely track that animal to make sure it either dies on its own or get close enough that they can kill it yeah so God, i just oh I don't like hearing about slow deaths. I'm like, mm, kill me. Well, we're we're gonna take a break from the death. It's still gonna be sad. But it's gonna we're come back. A break from death. <laughs> when the siege ended, Sakiko, her mother, sisters, and others on the losing side were taken to a prisoner camp and kept there for a year. Then they were exiled with seventeen thousand other refugees to a newly created district hmm. specifically for them. So it's like 
So it's going to be like poor and shitty. It almost reminds me of like reservations where it's like, yeah. you people that we don't want to deal with, go over go here. over there. Yeah. And just, just stay there. Yeah. I don't We're care not gonna pay what attention happens to you. to you, but just you go there. Yeah. Without experience in farming and having lost everything, it was all around a bad time. There were food shortages, lack of shelter, and resources which led to starvation. To survive, Sakiko would fertilize the fields with night soil and scavenged for shellfish. Any guesses as to what night soil is? It's, it's poo. It's human shit. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's poo. So everyone would like shit into these holes and she'd take it and like fertilize the fields to hopefully grow some food. Sakiko's life was not the only thing that was changing. After the Boshin War, Japan became more open to Western influence. They felt it was important to their survival to learn from Westerners who were forcing their ports open at gunpoint rather than continuing to resist them. So up until this point, Japan had largely been isolated from the West, though they had some trade agreements with like China, the Netherlands, and Korea, and some other kingdoms. Trade with the U.S. was strictly forbidden, and like yeah, I and I think get England it. too. Until American Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Tokyo Bay in 1853 with four gunships and basically said, "Either you trade with us, or these gunships gonna do what gunships do." Could he be any more aggressive? Right. Do you get it? Because it's friends, Matthew Perry. Yeah, I I get it. Don't worry. (laughs) I wanted, I was like, I have to work in a friends joke. Kelly will appreciate it. I did. As part of Japan's efforts to learn more about Westerners, the Japanese government paid volunteers to go and study abroad for 10 years with the goal of helping Japan modernize. Years. Wow. That's a, that's like a long time to be gone applicants were scarce so they were more than happy to accept sakiko's application the only issue was that sakiko never volunteered to travel abroad her brother had signed her up without her knowledge this accomplished two things i would punch my brother in the face oh absolutely like i don't want to go to this place that for 10 years no one else has ever been for 10 years But it accomplished two things. One, it increased the family's standing and meant that they would have one less person to To care for. Yeah, exactly. Because they're already struggling. And it's like you. I would still punch him in the face. Someone just else. I'd be like, why didn't you go? Yeah. (laughs) Prick. Like, you can marry me off. You can you can get me out of here anyways. You should have gone. Right. So in December of 1871, at 11 years old. So I'm glad he didn't marry her off. Let's be honest. Sakiko traveled with four other girls ages 6 to 14. They are children to the West. Like Sakiko, none of the girls knew English, had ever been abroad, or had volunteered. So, like, people They're probably all from that same area. They're all just cleaning house with their daughters. Like, get out. Just get out. I think it's interesting, yeah, that it ended up being all females. But I guess Japan and China, have they've always been... I'm not trying to be offensive. They don't have a great they've, track record with women. They, most they've, places I, don't. I'm going with they've all. Yeah, they they've most places have always been more favorable toward men and male children. There was also there was a larger initiative that this was a part of. So there were okay. guys that went over, and there were some ambassadors and things like yeah. this. But this was specifically this group of young girls who were being sent over for ten years. Before she left, Sakiko's mother gave her a new name signifying not only the beginning of her new life, but the end of her old one. Sutemasu, 
The characters that make up her new name are that of Despair and the name of the defeated Lord of Aizu. It also means thrown away pine trees. So it's just a fucking bummer of a Yeah, name. I'd be like, thanks, mom. It's like, yeah, because it's like. But I mean, I, I'm sure it's like naming her Despair because they're like, you're leaving us. Like, Yeah, but it that's what also I'm gonna go means thrown away pine trees. So it's kind of like we're getting rid of you. Right. But the Lord of Aizu's name is kind of in there. So I it's know. like, it's remember weird. your past. It's just a sad name. Yeah. It's like a the perfect Japanese goth name. <laughs> <laughs> so now the next section, obviously, is Sutemasu. Sutemasu arrived in the United States six years after our own civil war. So she was probably kicking around when Marianne was chilling. Oh, yeah, definitely. It must have all been so strange as they traveled from the West Coast to the East. On their journey, they witnessed incredible things like snowball fights and the aftermath of the Great Chicago Fire. Oh, also blackface because that it was a was, thing back then. It was- is a thing? Like, I feel like it's less of a thing. Like there might even be there might even be like listeners that don't know what that is. Yeah, but yeah, it's still around. Or renditions, I guess, of it are still around. But back then, it was a huge thing, and it was acceptable. Yeah, that was the big thing back then. It was acceptable. But like pictures of guys or people from like the 1950s are getting dredged up it's like this person did blackface it's like it was the 1950s what the fuck is wrong with you like stop the girls were something of a spectacle to americans and the press hounded them referring to them as princesses not the worst thing they could have been called as one story goes, Sutemasu and the other girls were dining with some wealthy gentlemen, and when Sutemasu asked them if anyone spoke Japanese, one of the men responded in what I can only imagine was the most racist, fake Japanese imitation and laughed at her. So, like, she's speaking Japanese. Hey, does anyone here know Japanese? And the guy goes, like, ching chong, bing bong, and laughs at her. Like, That's terrible. Fucked up. It's also just creepy that on this, you know, them learning about America trip, they're, these young girls are eating with old, rich, white guys. Yeah, and I don't know how old they were, but, like, these are children, and they right. don't know the language, and it's, yeah, mm. it's, no. Mm. It was reactions like this and a general terror from being away from your family and home for the first time in a country where you don't know the language that left the girls clinging to each other for support. Yeah but they wouldn't stay together long. What? First, the two eldest girls succumbed to stress and homesickness and returned to Japan. So the two oldest were like... Wait, that was an option? Right? Like, I'm sure it was hard, and I'm sure it was, like, maybe not an honorable choice, but they were like, this is fucked up. We are not doing this. And they peaced out and went home. Or maybe they got, like, sick or something. I'm not blaming them. I'm just like, I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. Then, the remaining girls were sent to live with different host families. Sutemasu was sent to live with preacher and writer Leonard Bacon in New Haven, Connecticut, who was a re- ironically a strict vegetarian. I'm, I made that up. That would it's my history headcanon. Yeah, okay. The dude named Bacon is a vegetarian. <laughs> she found a friend in Bacon's daughter, Alice. They were like sisters sharing each other's cultures, learning from each other, and making wicked bacon puns all night long. (laughs) However, the bacon struggled to pronounce Sutemasu's name correctly, and so they called her, it sounds like, it's spelled like Stetmats, 
S-T-E-M-A-T-S, but that was actually just like a phonetic way for her to spell her name. So I'm not even really saying her name right because I I like listen to the Japanese pronunciation. Yeah. And they don't pronounce the vowels as prominently as I do. So I go, su-te-ma-su. It's just, you know, like the the yeah yeah it. yeah so stepmats is a little closer to how i Japanese would have just called her like sue i'm kind of surprised they didn't like good for them though for trying to stick to her i name. don't know i almost feel like that's more offensive but i guess because it's like instead of suit it's st. yeah yeah so if you if you like listen to the Japanese oh, sure. pronunciation recording, it makes sense, but I cannot. It just speak sounds that weird well. to call someone Stitmas or whatever. Yeah, so she spelled her name S T E M A T S for ten years. While living in Connecticut, Sutemasu attended New Haven High School as I imagine the only Asian, let alone the only Japanese student. Perhaps she was the only Japanese person in all of Connecticut. Turns out, turns out where the other girls went exactly. to live. Exactly. <laughs> Sutemasu was a stellar student. After graduating from high school, she went on to attend Vassar College wow. in 1878. Sutemasu wouldn't be alone at Vassar. One of the other Japanese girls who had come Yay. with her to America, Shigeko Uryu, was also enrolled at Vassar. That's so cool. I hope, being... they, I hope they reconnected. They do. Good. Yes. So they're in this horrible like situation, living in this. But she's alien making the best of it, and they are killing it. Oh, at least two of them are. Throughout college, as in high school, Sutemasu went by that name, Stepmats. Though the girls' time in the United States was supposed to end in 1881, Sutemasu extended her stay to continue to rip Vassar a new one with her brilliance. She would graduate magna cum laude with her Bachelor of Arts degree. She appropriately wrote her thesis on British foreign policy toward Japan and gave a commencement speech about the topic to her graduating class. She also asserted that the key to a country's advancement was educating their women. And then she like mic dropped and like pieced out there. She's like, fuck y'all, I'm gonna empower some women. Unfortunately, Leonard Bacon, who had acted as her father figure for so long, died before he could see Sutemasu graduate from college. And I didn't hear a lot about him, but it sounds like he was... Decent, at least. I think he tried to do right by her, or did. Sutemasu stayed in Connecticut to train as a nurse for a few more months, but then came the time to return to Japan. So back to that Japan. would be that would actually be terrifying to leave Japan so young, spend your basically entire growing up period in the United States, and then have them be like, "Oh yeah, by the way, now it's time to go back to Japan." And it was the Japan that Sutemasu returned to was much different than the one she had left. The adjustment must have been very similar to when she had first come to America. After being away from Japan for over a decade, she struggled to even understand her native language as she had never learned to read or write Japanese. Because she was too, she was young and then of course living as a refugee, they're not teaching you shit. Right. That's So she's, she is this brilliant woman graduated from Vassar. She comes back to Japan and she's fucking illiterate. Like, 
Ah! Yeah, that's insane. Existential screams! <laughs> right. She described her feelings of this time as follows. I cannot tell you how I feel, but I should like to give one good scream. Which, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, this didn't happen to us and we're just... Like, that's... Oh, God. I can't... Like, that would be terrifying. Yeah. Japan's focus on modernization had shifted in favor of more traditionalism. So they they were kind of shocked by the Westerners coming in and they were like, oh, we need to play catch up. And then they're like, eh, I don't know about that. You know, the pendulum swings back and yep. forth. This basically meant that despite her journey, education, and experiences, Sutemasu was useless to her country. She was an outsider. Sutemasu would have none of it. She was determined to bring her country into the modern age. She's like, you bitches did not fucking send me to America to have me come back and then just be like, okay, thanks, We don't bye. need you. <laughs> yeah. Tsutemasu teamed up with Shigeko and Ume, two of the other women who had been sent to America, and then Shigeko was one of her yeah, classmates one of the one at Vassar. Vassar. Yep. So they all teamed up, and it was like Charlie's Angels, except there were fewer explosions and more national change. So better. Yeah, better. Much better. <laughs> the three women wanted to give Japanese girls and women the opportunities and education they had had. They wanted to open a school for girls. Unfortunately, there were two things in their way money, and social standing. Both would come from a very unexpected place. This gets fucking trippy. Okay. 42-year-old Iwao Oyama was a general in the Imperial Japanese Army, widower and father of three. He and Tsutemasu hadn't formally met before, but they had a lot in common. You see... Iwao had been at the Battle of Aizu, the same battle that had permanently scarred her and cost her sister-in-law her life, except Iwao had been fighting on the opposite side. Yeah. Awkward. This meant that Tsutemasu may have carried the bullets that scarred Iwao's body and he may have fired the shell that killed her sister-in-law and scarred her. Iwao would actually later make jokes that Tsutemasu made the very bullet that struck him during battle. Like, nice. Like it was super cute. Like, oh, look at my wife. She probably shot me once. Little Wait, sweetie. spoiler alert right there. Well. I figured that's where you were <laughs> headed, but spoiler alert. While Sutemasu was a child during the battle, Iwao was a grown man, so he's significantly older than her. Iwao was asking for Sutemasu's hand in marriage. Now, this could have been an epic love story that proved that love can conquer all, but it wasn't. Sutemasu didn't love him, but she did ha didn't have a lot of options. Finding work was difficult because remember, even though she graduated at the top of her class from Vassar, she was illiterate in Japan. And she needed funding and power to open up her girls' school. On November 8th, 1883, when she was 23 years old, so she's like 20 years younger than him, Sutemasu married Iwao Oyama, becoming Sutemasu Oyama. Her new surname better expressed her new identity as it meant Great Mountain. Ooh, nice. So she's discarded pine tree on the Great Mountain? Yeah. I guess. The marriage afforded Tsutemasu a serious bump in status. Iwao earned a series of promotions which elevated Tsutemasu's social standing from countess to princess. So now she was a real princess! That's insane. <laughs> 
they had two daughters and two sons together, unfortunately. Including the three other that he already had. Yeah. So together they had four kids. And then he had three kids from the previous marriage, who I imagine were like Sutemasu's age. Yeah. Like. Ish. Weird. Yeah. Don't like it. Unfortunately, uh, Sutemasu suffered a pregnancy loss with one of her daughters, Yuko, because, you know, she hasn't been through enough already. So she would have had, she had two daughters and two sons. One of the One of daughters, the daughters died. She had a miscarriage. Okay. Yep. I thought it was worth mentioning, though, because one, we don't talk about that. Yeah, enough. no, I'm and totally, two, I was just trying to make yeah. sure I understood that there wasn't supposed to be a third daughter. Right. But I thought it was cool. Like, she had a name. Yeah. Like, they I think that's great. everything. And it survived through history. Yay. Sutemasu also finally got to put what she learned in America to work as she consulted the Empress on Western customs and affairs. So she was super elevated and stuff. Oh, yeah, because she was, I mean, because she was a princess. Yeah, she's having tea with the Empress and she's like, okay, here's the deal with plumers, okay? They're fucking awesome. She also used her connections to the upper class to encourage elite women to volunteer as nurses and advocate for women's education. With her newly found status, Sutemasu was finally able to start her school for girls. It was called the Peeresses School, which taught the uh, girls of noble women. So it was only for the upper classes, but it was a start. It's a start, yeah. Naturally, Sutemasu brought on her fellow American alum, Ume... Yeah. Ume to teach at the school along with her American foster sister Alice Bacon. Oh, she brought Bacon home. She brought Bacon home. Sudimasu was the first person to introduce Bacon to Japan. Woo! <laughs> but I love like these women are coming like, together. They all kind of keep reconnecting and re like working right, together. Right, that's awesome. Shigeku, uh, Sutemasu's fellow Vassar alum, probably would have taught at the school, too, but she was busy becoming one of Japan's first piano teachers, teaching at the Tokyo Women's Normal School and teaching other Western music. That's awesome. She was teaching other stuff. She was on her own epic adventure. These women are fucking legends. Yeah, they are. Sutemasu worked like hell to educate her students and help run the school. As she rose through the school's administration, she had less time with her students and fellow teachers. This would not get easier. Gossip swirled around Sutemasu. She was seen as not Japanese enough. God, where have we heard that before? And power hungry thanks to her relationship with the Empress. Because God forbid a well-educated woman has a Can position be friends with another like yeah. woman right. in power. It's like, hey, you bitches could have gone to America, hey, too. at least they're not saying she slept to the top. <laughs> she kind of did, though. Like, she got yeah. married for power and influence. I know, but I think it's funny because they're not talking about that. They're like, she's friends with the Empress. Clearly, she wants power. Yeah. Well, that's because that's what everyone was doing. No one was in love back then. Love wasn't invented until the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and it was free. And it was free love, motherfuckers. When Sutemasu's stepdaughter died of the flu, an author wrote a novel about the event, blaming the character based on Sutemasu for the death. So basically, you know, Sutemasu and her husband are. No, I get that. I'm like, why did someone write about it and blame Sutemasu? Because this person was a prick, I guess. Okay. I don't know. So the rumors and animosity for Sutemasu only grew when the novel became a bestseller. So basically was was this an american author you said no, oh okay no so it was a novel 
based oh, and on I'm, like and this I'm, fictional yeah, account. And I'm sure that they were like, oh, it's because, you know, the mom's never around. The mom's not there to take care of the kids. She's blah, not blah, the blah, real blah, you mom. Know, exactly. Yeah. But basically, everyone kind of took this as a way to Fact. justify their yeah. beliefs. Like, some names have been changed to protect the identities. But we all know who this is about and what happened. Because, you know mothers are giving their kids the flu all the time all the time that that's the best way and ensuring to they someone. die from it that's the best way to kill an adult give them the flu right uh sute masu had been isolated for much of her life and this only compounded it she was also sacrificing her own needs for others she would write quote my husband grows fatter every year and i thinner unquote but yeah she's a power hungry monster who killed her own stepdaughter you know However, all of the sacrifice would pay off. In 1899, the government mandated uh, that there be at least one girls' school in every prefecture, dramatically expanding girls' access to education. That's awesome. Yes. Ume would later leave the Pierce's school to start a women's college that would be available to all women, not just the elite. This was an amazing endeavor, and would leave, but it would leave Sutemasu to run the Pires' school alone. Never one to worry about her own desires, Sutemasu would help fund Ume's university. Like, as long as the work gets done, she's like, let's fucking do this. Right. I don't care about myself or what I have to put up with. Then, in 1919, Tokyo was plagued with a devastating flu epidemic. Yep. The Spanish influenza, to be specific. Maybe you've heard of it. You know, it's just this devastating, you know, there's, global epidemic so that there's millions. There's a video on YouTube that's, it's just music and then like a map of the world and it shows world population throughout like the years. And it starts like when human civilization started. And yeah, it's really interesting because it's like growing, 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 black plague, black plague, everybody dies. Spanish <laughs> influence, everybody. Like, and it's so interesting to watch. So every, just go look it up on YouTube sometime. Because yeah, like every dot represents like a million people and during the black plague and like the Spanish influence, all these dots just like oh my disappear God. and it's insane. And it, it was global. It oh was yeah, everywhere. exactly. Same with the, like black plague was mostly Europe. So like yeah. half of Europe died. But like, yeah, the Spanish influence like it's just like all over the map well and the part of this whole thing has been japan becoming more open to the west and i'm like is that how it got to japan oh, probably i mean it's like the whites bringing smallpox to the native americans oh god that's a sad can of worms not even touching we it open today. a lot of sad cans of worms but that's not just... that this, this one's just getting set aside that's the worms why... can just hang out for that's a bit. why we drink wine right this just gets sad Okay, so Spanish influenza hits Japan. This epidemic was ripping through the city like fire. According to one report from the time, a local crematory had over 400 bodies waiting to be cremated because they couldn't keep up. And they even had to apply for special permits to work at night to keep the bodies from decaying too badly before they could be cremated. Like, absolute nightmare. The close quarters of the city allowed the disease to spread Spread quickly leading many to just fucking peace out of Tokyo, which I get it. Sute Masu could have fled, but that would mean leaving the school without someone to run it. So she stayed until they could find a replacement. The day after she found someone to manage the school, Sute Masu came down with a sore throat. 
She died two weeks later on February 18th, 1919, 72 years and two days apart from my birthday. Aww. So we're like bookending this. Yes, Happy sad. <laughs> Legacy. Sute Masu had little control throughout her life. She was scarred by a war that made her a starving refugee. She was sent to a foreign land against her will where she would be gawked at and spend over a decade separated from her family. She returned to a country that didn't recognize her and that didn't want her. She married a man that she didn't love so that she could help others. Nevertheless, throughout it all, she persisted and fought to promote women's education and improve her native country. Though isolation was a common struggle throughout her life, Sute Masu was not alone. She was supported by the women who had also gone to America and her American foster sister. Her story is that of perseverance and women empowering women. So, like, it's not, it's a sad story because she just gives and gives and has things taken away from her constantly. But she does it all to just make things better for the women around her. Right. And it's... It's so painful. She, she lived her life to empower other women. Yeah. And I'm going to pour a little out for you, Sute Masu. That's like, I got like a little drop in there. But yeah, that is uh, Sute Masu Oyama. Yeah. We covered two very powerful women that lived their lives for other people. Right. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Because I'm really sad right now. I know you're like making sad faces, and I'm. Well, it's we're it's both such making a, sad faces. It's such a beautiful story, and it's so incredible. But it's it reminds me of the books I would read in my women in literature class, where it's like oh, yeah. just nothing can fucking be happy, nothing can quite go right, and the women are just in perpetual suffering. Yeah, even if something good comes out of it. Like, she never got a happy ending, right. and eventually it killed her. Yeah, and that's super Ugh. depressing. We would I like to think we would have appreciated her more in modern times. Right. So I'm thankful for my coworker Cassie this week because she got me out of the house. Because I like so I'm still on. Actually, when this episode goes live, I will be back at work. But Yay! for now, I'm still on surgical, or I have been on surgical leave, and so I've spent a lot of time in my house. And uh, my coworker asked me if I wanted to go out for lunch, and it was just. It was really nice, like, to get out of the house, to see her, you know, catch up on some work stuff, catch up on, you know, personal stuff, because we're, we're really good friends. So that's what I'm thankful for this week. Something small and simple. But thank you. And that's so important when you're recovering from surgery. Like, when I had my hip stuff, I was stuck in the house. I couldn't drive. Right. I couldn't do anything. I think anything. I took you a few places. Like, right. I think a few times we were like, let's go to the mall. And I was like, I'll push you in a wheelchair. Let's just get out of the house. Popping wheelies at the mall. And that mall is not designed no, for wheelchairs. No, but we did it. It's a nightmare. Twice, actually. I think we did it one time for yep. each hip. <laughs> but uh, then there was another time uh, my friend Tierney picked me up and I all I wanted to do was be outside because it was the summer. Right. It was beautiful. And so we just went on a drive in like the back roads and went up to like Lake City and we're looking right. at the Sometimes river. Sometimes that's just so nice. And it was everything I didn't know I needed because right. I just I needed to get out of the house. We were jamming out to music. And so I'm just. Yeah. And screaming. that's exactly how like Wednesday <sighs> was. It's just like I just needed to see someone, you know. And, and get like, out of your house. And see someone like outside like my regular people. Like like I love you and I love my husband. But, but I you know, you. 
Well, and like <laughs> when you're used to seeing people every day, or in my case, one like once a week, and suddenly you don't see them for three to four weeks, you know, like it's really weird. So well, it was just really nice. It's nice to know too that she wanted to hang out with you, right? Even exactly. It wasn't at work. Yeah, it was. It was I'm nice. glad. I'm really thankful you came to Zumba with me this last it week. Fun. It was a ton of fun. Although I- then I went to IKEA the next day. And then, like, when I got home from Ikea that night, my ankle and my knee hurt so bad. Oh, I was no. like, this was the worst decision I've ever made. Not doing either of them, but... Back to back. Doing them back to back. <laughs> so, I'm proud of you, though. You killed it. Like, I mean, you killed it more, but the... Here's you know, the thing. I, I was worried... I've lost muscle tone. So. I was worried you were going to, like, you were going to hate it and never want to go back. I loved it. I definitely want to go back. Yeah. We can't go this coming week, but we will definitely go after that. Yeah. I am also thankful I got uh, an opportunity to model for some art classes, and they want me for two out of the three nights, yeah. and so that made me feel all good. That's I get awesome. a little... A little extra cash in the savings. Is that uh, like January or like after January, the holidays? February. Yeah, that'll be nice. Like replenish stocks from buying Christmas gifts and stuff. Yeah. I, I've already bought some gifts, but I'm super tempted just right on online. Like no one get me anything because I can't afford to deal with you people. <laughs> you all got Christmas cards. Merry Christmas. I'm sending, I'm sending positive vibes your way. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, uh, Instagram, WAHpod. Twitter, WAH underscore pod. Um, hit us up on our email. Tell us about wonderful women in your life, whether it's you want to say their name or just tell us or, you know, even hell, shout yourself out. Like... Are you doing something super cool? We want to hear about it and we'll, we'll tell the world, you. right? We'll um, promote the fuck out of yeah, you. Yeah, and that email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. And then I've fallen behind, but I'm my goal is to catch up tomorrow slash this week on our blog, which is whiningaboutherstory.com. And check out our Patreon, which is now up. And if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to give us money, which is fine, please rate and review us wherever ever you listen if you listen on spotify head over to facebook or you know some somewhere over there and rate us there like because that's how other people are going to find us so if you think we're wonderful and want other people to think we're wonderful rate and review please if you listen to us on itunes you soups need to rate and review us five stars because that is huge yes, getting discovered on itunes is really big so please i know you're listening i, I see say, those I think, stats i think pod chaser is another big one yep um and i We've think we have like one one, one review. review on there so like do that one also, special shout out to Kara for, for being, being our, our first, first patron. Patreon. Thank you. you. You've been, I think, with us basically since the beginning. Yeah, so and we, love we you. appreciate you very much. And we're working on some new content, including some kid-friendly content. Yes, and that will all be Patreon exclusive. Yeah. One dollar a month gets you access to our entire Patreon. Yes. So get and, on and that. And we're going to do some, like, tour, studio tour, and then, like, maybe a little get to know the hosts like i'll show off my dogs or something we're gonna do some un uh or not unboxing gift opening videos because i want to get a video of you opening the gift i got you oh okay yes 
We're doing it. Okay. Official. Okay. Said here first. <laughs> <laughs> Whining about her street head cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.